Uh, let's go to Luke chapter 22. Um, if you're visiting or wondering what Luke is, Luke very simply is a gospel. And a, a gospel is basically account, an account of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And so uh, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke is writing here. He's a physician by trade. He's a doctor. And he is basically writing to lay before us the, the glorious truths of who Jesus is and what he has done. And I'm going to keep saying this until we finish this book. And I, absolutely every time we talk about Jesus Christ, and that's that Luke is not writing these things so that you and I just learn a bunch of information and leave no different and not transformed. He is laying before you truths about Jesus so that would actually transform you, okay? It would inform your mind, affections, decisions, your life, especially dealing with your sin and how it can be resolved through Jesus and how Jesus asks us to live. And so um, it's been exciting to walk through this entire book um, and uh, see all of this. But where we are right now, Luke 22, is the Passion Week of Jesus. This is the last week of Jesus' life. He's headed to the cross. He has been proclaiming this and teaching this and sharing this through his entire public ministry out of the gate. And uh, here we're closing the gap on he is almost to uh, Calvary. Well, he, were, he will die as a sacrifice for sin in the place of sinners so that God's wrath could be appeased on him and not on us and so that we could be raised with him as he rises the third day and then shows up to a couple hundred and then ultimately ascends, gifts his Holy Spirit to all who are his, all who have trusted in his name, and therefore we walk as living lights, as ambassadors to tell the good news of what this Jesus has done. And so uh, we're seeing him really close the gap. It is late on Thursday night. He is, uh, we saw last week, he instituted the Lord's Supper, which is what you see at all these tables, which we love to celebrate, remembering his broken body and his shed blood and what he did. Um, and here he's gonna close out with a few um, statements before he heads to the garden. And so we're gonna pick up in verse 24. And what you're gonna see in these, basically these 20 verses is just one real thread or one real threat, one real strand or one real thread, and it's uh, the pride of man, the humility of Jesus. Um, very simply, you're gonna see that. You're gonna constantly see the pride Pride well up in man's heart, and you're going to constantly see Jesus demonstrate and display like he always does, the quintessential example that he is for us. So verse 24, here is what Luke writes. He says, the dispute arose among them, this is the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader of the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Okay, this is, this is nuts. This is in the shadow of the cross, okay, as Jesus is just laid before him in the Lord's Supper and instituting the Lord's Supper. Hey, I'm about to break my body and shed my blood for the forgiveness of sin. He, he is going all the way to the cross. He's about to do this. He's about to inaugurate this and where he's gonna display the greatest act of love and humility in human history. And as he had just finished telling them profound, weighty truths, they're sitting around quarreling going, hey man, who do you think's the greatest? Now, let me just answer the question for you very simply. It's Jesus, right? I mean, how, how, that, that's, that's hilarious, right? I mean, hey, who's the greatest? I don't know. Who made everything? Uh, Jesus, right? Who's going to die for sin? Jesus. <laughs> who, who multiplied loaves and fed the 5,000? Jesus. Who, who's done miracles? Who's raised the dead to life? Who has opened blind eyes? Who has opened deaf ears? Jesus, right? So this is just silliness, yet they're sitting around totally ignorant of the man who is there, the God-man Jesus, who just demonstrated and laid before them the profound nature of his cross that is right before him, and they're sitting around in silliness going, hey, who do you think's better? Who do you think deserves the throne on the right side or the left side? And um, here's what I want you to understand. Um, really, what, what's happening here is the seating arrangements at, at Jewish feasts were totally clear. So you had basically a big horseshoe. So you had a table here, and then tables that went like this. It was kind of like a big U. And at the center head of the table was the host, right? This is Jesus, who's likely sitting there at this Lord's Supper. And then you had wrapping around everyone else. So the first guest of honor is on the right-hand side. The second guest of honor is on the left-hand side. Then the third guest of honor is on the next right-hand side, so forth, right? It goes all the way around. So they understood all these things, and disciples are quarreling because they still hadn't rid themselves of this idea of an earthly kingdom. Remember, we, we said this weeks ago that their understanding of consummation, the end of all things, and, the, and the, basically the, the consummation, the new heavens and new earth, they thought that was going to happen right when Jesus got to the cross and paid the debt in full, when really that was going to be the reconciliation of man, and we would still live in this already not yet time period 
until he returns a second time to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. And so they're, they're fixed on this earthly kingdom going, okay, hey, where are we going to sit tomorrow? Like, like as soon as you do this thing, I mean, how, how's everything going to be set up? Who is going to be the greatest? And Jesus, I love this, repeats what he's been saying throughout Luke. The standards of the kingdom of God are totally upside down from the standards of the world. Oh, just so you know, these lights are off because I forgot to reset them. So it's not, I know, I see Jim trying to find a switch. So it's, it's me. It's on me. So you're good. All right, so here, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus just repeats what he's been saying throughout Luke, Outlook, how these standards of the kingdom of God are upside down. So these benefactors, that's just a common title for a king. Okay, that's just the basic way that, that someone would, would say they're a king of a land. And what would happen is a king's uh, basically uh, status was considered based upon the power that he exercised. So if you had more power, then you were elevated. Now, this is nothing different from our culture today, right? The CEO is the greatest, right? The owner of the company is the greatest. The ones who, are, who built the thing, who created the thing, they're the greatest. And yet Jesus says, no, the greatest should be those who serve. And so Jesus here says, in my kingdom, it's not the king who obtains the title of greatness, but the servant. Now, all Jesus is doing basically is just redefining greatness, Right? He's just taking what we understand as greatness, what the disciples understood as greatness, and he is totally redefining it. And he reveals the humility that should mark a servant of Jesus Christ as the one who serves. So Jesus says, hey, let's say you go into a really nice restaurant, a, a banquet feast where, where there's tons of people. And you see all these waitresses and, and waiters basically waiting on them. And there's this uh, special group that's in this like banquet hall. You would say, man, those people must be super important. And Jesus says, well, actually, it's the ones who are waiting on them who are really great. It's not the ones who are seated at the table. It's not the ones who are asking to be served. It's the ones who are actually coming to them. And Jesus has consistently demonstrated this. He says, the, the one who's humbly serving to the glory of God, they're the great ones. And he says, I came to earth not to sit at the table, but to be a servant. This is John 13, right? where he washed the disciples' feet. This is Mark 10, where he said, I didn't come to, to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. This is just consistent with all that Jesus has been teaching. So what's really going on in this picture here before we continue on? Really, um, it's the subtlety. It's the subtlety of pride. That's what you're seeing here in this text, in this picture. Um, and very simply, pride is just you chasing an illusion of glory. So it's you believing that through your fame, through your work, through your relationships, through your esteem, through whatever it is, you, you chase something, right, to somehow get fame for yourself and therefore get glory for yourself. This is the fundamental sin of the universe. It goes back to the garden, Genesis 3, right? It is idolatry that cast out Adam and Eve and ultimately Satan at the beginning. We read in Isaiah 14 that he wanted to be God. It was this idolatrous heart that ultimately cast us away from the good God who's the only one worthy of worship, the only one who can make new, the only one who can redeemed. No one else can do that. And so here in this space, we're seeing this illusion of glory. And this is what the American dream teaches us, right? Be better than the next guy. Make more money, work harder, get up the chain, do everything you can in your power to push everybody else aside, to grow in fame and grow in prestige. And it's fundamentally rooted in us believing we deserve more than what we're getting. So one way you can very simply kind of uh, check pride in your heart, just like these disciples, is um, you believe you, should des you deserve more praise than you get. So in the office, right? Now, I should be praised more than that. Don't they see the work I'm doing? Don't they see the after hours that I'm, that I'm serving and caring for this place? Or you don't get the thanks you think you deserve? You don't get the respect you think you deserve? That's where pride begins to seep up. You think maybe you deserve more money than you're making. Man, God, don't you see my gifts? <laughs> Did you see how awesome I am? I mean, I am God's gift to humanity. So put me in a company and I'll make billions. And that's all just rooted in the subtlety of pride. It's an illusion, the thing that you chase. Here's why. Because God is the only one who can be in that category. Right, so everything else you chase to try to be him, you will not be. So, so the only one who sits in that category who doesn't have to chase any illusion of glory or fame or prestige is God himself. And so um, C.S. Lewis said it really well. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is comparison that makes you proud. 
So just like these disciples here, here's how pride begins to work itself out. Um, You begin to criticize others and other things because you have a God problem. And so um, you see this even with these men. You think you deserve the power and control God has, so you take delight in calling the shots, right? You want to be God. And so here's the thing. If it excites you to dish out critiques, you probably have a pride issue. Like if you love going around looking for that, there's probably something in your heart that is off that God wants to realign. Because the prideful person buys the illusion they're in control and play the role of God. You see this sometimes in parenting and marriage, right? Where you just so desperately want to control your situation, control your surroundings. And what happens is instead of bringing about health and bringing about change and, and trusting them to the God of the universe and just being faithful as God has asked you to be faithful, you become a self-fulfilling prophet. And all the very things that you freak out about and you try to control start happening because you're freaking out trying to control it. And that's just pride that's at work there. This isn't marriages. I see this repeatedly as we sit down. You have one spouse who says, hey, um, hon, I think we need help. And the spouse goes, nah, we're good. It'll get better. I mean, do, do you see the pride there? I mean, your spouse just said, hey, our marriage is on fire, right? And you say, nah, it'll get better. No, I'll work it out. Right, that, that's just pride speaking. You trying to control the situation or ignoring, you're chasing some illusion that somehow that'll just fix itself over time when one of you is saying, hold on a second, something's not right here. And instead of walking humbly and going, okay, let, let's figure this out. How do we walk in grace? How do we navigate this? How do we pray about this? How do we you know, kind of look at the root of this? You just go, my marriage won't fall apart. My marriage will be fine. And this is all that's beginning to happen in the disciples' hearts. It's been an age-long issue. All of human history has wrestled through this. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus, I love it, he's foreshadowing constantly what he will ultimately do. There is only one who is great and worthy of worship, Jesus. We are not great, he makes us great. He is awesome, we are morons. Like, that's just the truth, right? Like, we're the created beings. Like, when can we just kind of sit in our place, right? Like, God, you made everything. You gave me the brain that I have to even know you and love you, and yet I'm sitting here putting you on the dock when I'm on the dock. Like, I'm trying to judge you and tell you you should operate and rule the universe, and he's going, no, one day you're going to stand before me, and I'm going to judge you. You're not going to stand before God and say, hey, you should have made Pluto bigger, Like, no one's doing that. No one's going to be giving God suggestions. And here we're seeing that outside of this whole thing is the pride in the human heart. We grow in pride. Here's what's happening. You fundamentally grow in pride every time you forget the humility of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus is reminding them, I'm not a leader like other leaders. I'm not a king like other kings. My kingdom is unlike every other kingdom. It is totally upside down. Because the point is not to make you a nice boy or girl, right? Because the issue with human history and the human heart is not a moral issue, it's a heart issue. That's always been the issue. And so where you just try to fix moralism, you're gonna always have an issue with the heart issue. And this is why in the humility of Jesus Christ, him serving us is really the starting point to everything. It's a starting point of Christianity, and it's a starting point of you understanding everything. Because fundamentally, think about this. In the good gospel news of Jesus Christ, he's the one who initiates, inaugurates, comes, and serves us, and gives us a new mind to think differently. He gives us a new heart in his personal work. He gives us the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in his personal work. He is the one who constantly serves. I mean, the reason you're a Christian is because God humbled himself in the person of Jesus Christ when he didn't have to. He did not count you worthy because you were worthy. He considered you worthy because he decided to, and he came and he lived and he died and he rose to serve you when we deserve nothing, right? We've been seeing that. I mean, what we really deserve is incineration. What we really deserve is hell and torment. What we really deserve is judgment for our sin. We don't want to talk about that. We want to subvert that. We want to ignore that. We don't want to look at that, but that's the truth. And Jesus comes to shield us from that, take that for us, and give us himself. Off the charts, humility. You're not going to see it anywhere else. There's no picture that can be painted that's more glorious or more beautiful than the humility of Jesus Christ. So we've got to remember that no matter what we talk about, I know I say this a lot, no matter what we talk about in this room, it always has to come back and center around Jesus Christ. It has to. 
Because even to be a Christian means to be like Jesus, means little Christ, right? That's been so screwed up in our culture. We tell everybody they're a really good Christian because they don't cuss, or you're a really good Christian because you don't drink, or you're a really good Christian because you dress up and go to church, or you're a really good Christian because you go to church, or you're a really good Christian because you bring your Bible. Or you're really... No, no, a Christian is to look and act like Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is, what a Christian is to be. And so instead what happens is we, we look at this great gospel and we have a new heart and a new mind that says, man, Jesus served me so humbly, I wanna go serve others as Jesus served. Not because I have to, because I get to. Not so that he will love me, he already has loved me. We now do it because I want people to see, not so they're impressed with us, but so that they see the great love that Jesus has towards us. Otherwise, here's what happens. You, you leave church every week going, man, well, I just wanna pray more, period. Well, I don't know, I just want to like get my Bible more, period. Or I just want to like be more loving, period. Instead of, no, I want to be more loving so people see the greatness and kindness of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Man, I want to, I want to pray and be in my Bible so I know more of this great love that Jesus has for me. I want to do anything so that it centers around Jesus Christ increasing, that's why we should want to do anything. And this is awesome because Jesus here, as they're arguing and quarreling in their pride as to who's the greatest, Jesus says, no, this is not how the kingdom is. He gives them a picture of what's ahead, verse 28. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I love it. Jesus admits. This is actually a really kind statement from Jesus. And notice, he doesn't really get after them for trying to pursue greatness. He redirects how they should understand it. So he doesn't outright rebuke them, but he says something really kind here. He says, guys, your glory's coming. Like, why are you so preoccupied with the fame of your name here when you have the greatest fame coming and glory? And Jesus rolls out this amazing, amazing, amazing thought because humility at its, at its grassroots reminds you and I that this life is not all there is to life. Right? Like if we're gonna be shaped with some good Bible-based humility, like you have to start with everything I see right now before me is not all that there is or will be. Right, you have to understand that. You have to, you have to get there. So here he shows them, pride tells us, we need to do all we can right now with what's in front of us to make as much for me as I can get to build up my kingdom so I can sit on my puny little throne for a short time. Right, and God's going, why are you so preoccupied with building your kingdom, growing your fame to sit on your little throne when you've got a throne coming at the banquet table of Jesus Christ? Now listen, I don't know what the seating chart looks like. I mean, I don't know where everybody's going to be, but I promise you, sitting with Jesus at his table is much better than sitting without Jesus anywhere. And so the whole thing Jesus is getting at is you can chase the illusion of glory. You can, in your pride, well up trying to quarrel over who's the greatest and how do I grow in that? And Jesus, how do you like me more than somebody else in comparison that rots our souls? Or you can chase the reality that who you've been made in Jesus Christ is going to echo on and reverberate for eternity. And one day, we saw last week, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper in its fullness with Jesus at the head. And he'll have you sitting around that table. And trust me, it won't matter where you're sitting. If you're at the kiddie table, no one's going, oh man, I'm at the kiddie table. No one's going to care because you're at the table with the risen lamb that was slain. That's coming for you. That's real. That's real. And so why do we give our lives to this exhaustion to sit on a throne on this earth when it's not in friendship with Jesus? that will pale in comparison to whatever seat he will give you in the kingdom. And Jesus is showing it's because you shared in bearing the cross of Christ that you will share in wearing Christ's crown. He says there, you stay with me in my trials. This is Luke 9, Luke 14, you denied yourself, you picked up your cross, you followed me. There's reward coming. You're gonna share with me in my crown because you bared my cross. It's amazing. 
It's motivating, right? And here's what's amazing. In the middle of all this, as he's having these sentiments, he knows that Peter's still struggling with pride. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that you might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you and your, that your faith may not fail. That's insane. And when you have turned again, strengthen your weak brothers. Peter said to him, look at, his, look at Peter's response here. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Okay, Jesus who knows everything, he's omniscient, he is fully God. He goes, hey, Peter, by the way, Satan's gonna sift you out like wheat. He's gonna try to tear you apart, but I'm gonna pray and my prayers are actually going to preserve you as you fall and then once you get back up and turn from that, you're gonna strengthen people through your failure and Peter in ignorance and total pride goes, now, no, I mean, I know you're omniscient. I know you know everything, Jesus. I know you've done all these miracles, but man, I would die for you. I'd go to prison for you. Don't worry. That's not gonna happen. Do you see the pride in his heart? Do you see a total non-humble response? And he calls him Simon because Simon is Peter's former name. You'll see in the scriptures, God will sometimes rename people to show the gravity of what it means to be made new in Jesus Christ. That, that that was your old life. That the change is so drastic that you were literally died your sin and rose again with Jesus Christ. That the change is so profound that he gives you a new name. So Simon, he's, it's almost like Jesus is saying to Simon, hey Simon, in a little while you're going to revert back to who you were before you were a Christian. And, and you're going to stumble and you're going to fall and you're going to deny me. But don't worry, I'm praying that your soul would be preserved And then this very loving thing he says to Peter, and when you turn back, you're gonna help your brothers. It's, it's almost like, you know, when we walk through deep, dark difficulty or struggle, that's when we're most apt to help somebody who walks through the same thing. And he knows that Peter now is gonna be an ambassador of help and health to other brothers because of what he's going to walk through, because of the failure and restoration of God in his heart. And he's gonna be a great minister of that to others. And so he says, Satan's gonna try to tear you apart, but I'm greater than he, and my prayers will preserve you. Guys, Satan's the father of lies. Jesus is the father of truth. This is why Jesus says that you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. So we need to be aware there's an aggressive enemy out to devour you and seek you out and dissuade you and throw condemnation on you and lies at you and discouragement at you. And Jesus says that's coming, but he has more authority than him. He is more powerful than him. And Peter in his pride just goes, no way. You're continuing to see what pride does. It really creates an image of you that's much bigger than it should be. And it decreases the image of Christ much smaller than it should be. So what happens when pride begins to seep into the human heart is you begin to grow in this image of you and Christ begins to shrink over time. His glory diminishes, his majesty is tainted, his worth dwindles in your eyes. I'm not, it never dwindles, his majesty never shrinks, his glory never decreases, but in your mind towards him it does. That's what happens, that's what we're seeing here, and that's why we must be very, very careful of the things we say we will never do. The things that you say you will never do are probably the things you should guard most carefully against. I can't tell you how many times I'll sit down with people and the, and the first thing they'll say is, I mean, I never thought I would do that. And somewhere along the lines, like no one set out to be an adulterer, no one set out to cheat on their spouse, no one set out to do this or do that. Like, like they didn't wake up one morning and go, man, I can't wait to do this. I mean, it was just over time. And it was pride seeping into their heart Believing they had power and authority they did not have, trusting more in themselves and not on the risen Christ. And eventually chasing that fame to a degree that that's all that they wanted. That's all that they saw and Christ was nowhere to be found. And here we see Jesus warn against that. And that's why Jesus loves him and says, when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. You will deny me, you will weep bitter tears, but the result will be that you will be better able to help your brothers going through that thing. Now Jesus is just gonna reiterate their need to be prepared for what's coming because clearly they continue to be ignorant based upon Peter's response of what's ahead in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Like they're still blind to it, even though we talked about this. Jesus is not shy about this. I hear skeptics say all the time, well, Jesus didn't really know what he was gonna do, didn't really know he was gonna die, just kind of snuck up on him. No, he constantly says, no, hold off. This ain't happening, not time yet, hour's not ready. Then he says, no one takes my life from me. I'm laying it down. I have authority to do that. No one's gonna creep in here without me letting them creep in here. And so here he just reminds them as what's ahead, that man, you guys are hours away from me being crucified for sin. Look at verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Okay, if you remember, back in chapter 10, he sent him out, right, to 72, but it's a totally different mission. And he goes, hey, make sure you don't take anything. I want you to learn to depend on me. Remember, we, we, we walked through that as a faith family. And here, all of a sudden, Jesus is going, okay, now take everything I told you not to take. So you can almost hear the disciples here kind of going, okay, Jesus, uh, what is it? Pack supplies, don't pack supplies. Be ready or don't be ready. Wear shoes, don't wear shoes. Pack a weapon, don't pack a weapon. Well, it depends on the mission. There's wisdom in following the Holy Spirit of God. There's wisdom in listening to Jesus. It's not always going to be the exact same in every situation. It depends on the mission God has given you, but here's what he's really doing in this place. He's saying here, he said in Luke 10, on this mission, take nothing. And then he says in the wake of his death, on this mission, take everything. Why? Because you're going to have to fend for your very lives. You have no idea what's around the corner. And we know the story as it rolls out, right? Boy, was there something around the corner. Almost all of them totally martyred for their faith in Jesus. Beheaded, boiled alive. And Jesus is just reminding them, this is happening. You've got to consider this. And Jesus is looking. I, I feel like he's, because it's in response to Peter, it's almost like he's going, Peter, you're, Pride is blinding you so much, you need to be prepared. Now we know he, in the garden, he grabs a sword and cuts the ear off. It's like, all right, well, Jesus was still in control there. I mean, like, Jesus didn't give him the green light for that. Like, okay, I know I told you to take a sword, but let's easy. But he's showing them here that there is something that is about to take place, and it's almost like he's saying, You had me up until this point. And soon I will be gone, and you're going to need to defend your very lives. My entire life in public ministry is reaching its climax. And I love it. He quotes Isaiah 53, 12, where it says he will be numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified between two guilty thieves. He's just saying again, he's reminding them, hey, this is going to happen. Like, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. This is all going to roll out. What Isaiah said 700 years ago is being fulfilled in me. This all has to take place. All that was written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Don't you see that we're hours away from it? I mean, he just keeps saying this to his friends. Don't you see that me dying the death for sin is imminent? It is right upon us. It's culminating. So you better get ready and you better have a humble heart that listens to me and prepares well. And then verse 39, and so they came out. Now they came out of the upper room and they went, as was his custom, the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus leaves the upper room and retreats to the Mount of Olives as he did each night and enters a garden. Now, I don't know how you picture this garden, but when I was in Israel, it was really profound. There's really a lot of wealthy people that live right around this area, and it's more a private garden that people owned with their wealth. So it's likely that Jesus was in this garden. When you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's not some big forest. It's a private garden that somebody owned. And so maybe these people let him go there to pray, but it says it was his custom, so we know it was regular. So Jesus had a place, Jesus had a time, Jesus had a space where he would go and withdraw because of the craziness of Passover in the city and commune with God and spend time with God. And Luke lets us eavesdrop in this prayer that Jesus has with his father. And let me just say, 
He's praying and saying these things, and in this scene, there is none like it in human history. There is no scene like it. He's praying because he knows what is before him. This was the very hinge and turning point of Jesus' life. He could refuse the cross right here in the garden. And he knew the salvation of man was dependent upon what he would do. He knew the blood that had to be shed. He knew the wrath that had to be scorched. He knew the scourging and the mocking. He knew all that was ahead. And he literally starts to sweat it out in the garden we're gonna see in a minute. But here we see Jesus in the face of temptation, again, being the quintessential example for us. Jesus in the deepest agony, deepest pain, runs to God in prayer. He doesn't run to his sin. I mean, is it not true, friends, that when you are in suffering or trial that you think you deserve sin a little bit? Like, like I deserve to run to this sin because look at my life. So instead of running to God in prayer, the only place you'll find rest for your aching soul, you run everywhere else. You run to the bottle, you run to work, you run to shopping, you run to sex, you run to, I don't know, who knows, just, just, just um, create, I don't know, just whatever that thing is that you chase and run after. It's the same thing with pride of the human heart. You chase that thing thinking that thing will give you the rest for your soul when God's going, you need to come find rest in me and God in Jesus Christ repeatedly demonstrates how that works itself out. So you see Jesus as our example He does not run to sin. He does not ignore the will of the Father. He gets on his knees and he pleads and he communes. And what's amazing is he comes out filled and rested and strengthened and encouraged. Like where do you run when life just falls apart? Most of us first blame God and then run to sin. And even though you see the effects of that, you continue in the cycle of insanity, which is you keep trying what doesn't work, thinking some point it might work for you. And you're just in the cul-de-sac of insanity, running around looking, and God the whole time is going, man, run to me, lay it out to me, be real with me, be honest with me, lean into me, cry out to me, commune with me. And I love looking at this with Jesus because here, it's amazing. The prideful response would be to run from, but Jesus is totally humble and he runs too. I always say the mark of Christian maturity is when you are in your darkest hour, you don't run from God, but run to God. Realize there is no shame that he cannot heal. There is no sin that he has not looked at. There is nothing uncovered under the sun. That God wants to minister to you in that moment. I wonder what you do and what your posture is. And according to Luke, this was his custom. It was his place. Just real quickly, do you have a place like, like, trust me, if you leave here going, man, well, I just, to pray, I'm just gonna kind of figure out what that looks like. Just set, set a place and a time. It's gonna be different for everybody, and I will say, I know it's a little bit different for me because I have this awesome big room every week, all day, but one thing that has just been so nourishing to my soul is every day that I come in here, the first thing I do is I walk into this room and I sit in the front row and I just start pleading with the Lord. And I just start begging him for you and for me and for protection and for God to work, the gospel to advance sin to be killed and holiness to increase. I I plead with him for all this thing, the marriages. I pray for you by name, everybody that he brings to my mind. But man, coming in at a set place at a set time before anything else happens has been deeply nourishing to my soul. So I don't know what the place is for you, but get away and do that. Maybe it's in your car on your drive to work where that's gonna be my place and my time because if you don't, if you don't set that up, nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna happen. You're gonna have everything else in your life just crowd in. And Jesus shows us this beautiful example of what it looks like. This is why coming this Wednesday, the last Wednesday of every month, we gather for corporate prayer. We just said it, last Wednesday of every month for those who are able to come and gather for an hour and a half just to seek the Lord's face. Sunday morning at nine o'clock, In the classroom, before we gather, we come to pray and ask the Lord to do something here. Do you realize, friend, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you wonder what you're doing here, we've prayed for you. Now, some of you are like, dang it, right? You don't like that, but we love that. I mean, we love, if God is stirring in you and working in you, and I'm telling you, you've got prayers of saints that are begging God on your behalf because they love you with love that is insane. 
And what God is doing in this place, which is just super humbling, I mean, as I talk to you and, and, and have discussions with you, and, and as we've been meeting during the weeks, I mean, I only attribute it to prayer because there's nothing else we can do to fabricate it or make anything happen. That's why I constantly say we need transformation, not just information. It does not matter if you just hear a bunch of verses and scripture during the week. You've got to have something ignite the very things that you hear and the very things that you see, and only the Holy Spirit of God can do that. So we're going to keep begging the Lord to take what is here and to ignite it as we set kindling up in our service. Because really that's all we can do. And we rest on what he can do. And this is what Jesus does in the garden. This is fundamentally what Jesus does. Because he is our perfect example. And he models this for us. And then the perfect submission to the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. (laughs) Total, divine, off the charts humility. Just circle that. If you love to write in your Bible, like just, just, just circle that phrase. Not my will, but your will be done. I mean, can't you just feel in this moment, Jesus? Man, they're on their way to arrest me. I know what Isaiah said 700 years ago. They're gonna scourge me, beat me, mock me, spit on me, shame me. I know I'm gonna get up and be nailed. I know that I'm gonna atone for the sins of the world. I know that all of this is before me. God, is there any other way we can do this thing? Is there any other way this thing can happen? I mean, I know our agreement in eternity past that we agreed this would happen, but I'm ultimately submitted to your will. I mean, I realize that there are things that I want. You see Jesus' humanity just flushing out in this scene. I love it, right? He is fully divine, fully human, without sin, and he fully submits to the good will of the Father, even though you see still in his humanity the anguish in his soul as he's tormented over this. I mean, Hebrews 5 says, he cried with loud tears and wailings that he was in total torment. None of us even have words really to describe this scene. But I love this. He's submitting to his father, but he understands who the father is he's submitting to. He's submitting to a father whose love will never let him go. And he knows that. Like when you submit to something, in your life, like when there's, when there's heartache and agony or a situation in your life that you just, it's just hard for you to get through or get in or understand how God works in that and you just submit to him. It's not just, yeah, I'm cool with this. Yeah, I don't know, figure it out. No, you're submitting to something actual in the characteristic of God. You're submitting to a father who even though you're in deep, dark suffering, he says still, I'm in this with you. Matthew 28 is still my promise for you. I will not let you go. I'm with you through the fire and out of the fire that I sustain you in your darkest nights of the soul. It's not always that I deliver you from darkest nights of the soul, it's that I keep you at bay. Because as Johnny Erickson said, I'd rather have Jesus in my hell that is now than never at all. And understand, friends, Jesus identifies with you in your deepest, darkest pain. Every time you look at the life of Jesus Christ, like you are, you have to remember that that is the Hebrews for him identifying with you. Like if he doesn't walk through any of this, guys, then he cannot fully identify with you when you hit moments of deep, dark suffering. What God is available to you? Atheistic, theistic, humanitarian, pantheistic, no other God's available to you in those moments of deep anguish other than the God of the scriptures who is Jesus Christ who says, man, I identify with you deepest. You know what I love? When I am walking in heartache and struggle, I just bring myself back to Luke 22. That Jesus was wailing and in torment and that way he can minister to me in the most profound of ways. Verse 43 Look what happens in the middle of all this. And an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. So cool. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. More earnestly. The deeper his suffering, the more he prayed. And his sweat became like drops of great blood falling down to the ground. And then he rose from his prayer, came to his disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow, and said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
An angel sent by God to minister to Jesus. Very quickly, there's spirit beings created by God to bring messengers and to minister. You see this in the beginning. They're the, they're the messengers that announce that Jesus is going to be born, right? And then in Luke 4, as he's in the wilderness being tempted by Satan after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, they come and they minister to him. So, so God sends in the humanity side of Jesus an angel to come and minister to him. It's so beautiful to comfort him. But I want us to end with seeing this here. Luke, who is a physician by trade, diagnoses Jesus as he was beginning to sweat drops of blood. That the agony and torment was so deep, the distress was so great that he began to actually sweat blood from his brow. Now there's actual total medical condition where if you get under a certain degree of distress, which is super rare, that you can begin to sweat drops of blood. The distress has to be so great and unparalleled for that to happen, and it is super rare. Yet Jesus here is under such agony at what's before him that he begins to sweat drops of blood. Now, I want to land the plane with this. Why is Jesus, and this is so important, so important, why is Jesus in such distress? Why is he in such torment that he begins to sweat drops of blood? It's not because the crucifixion is before him. It's not because he knows the pain of nails going through your wrists and feet. It's not because he knows that a crown of thorns is gonna be pressed into his head. It's not even because he knows he's gonna be scourged, spit on, shamed, mocked, and belittled. Even though those are horrific things, listen, crucifixion was very common and he was about to partake in something that was very common to many other men before him. So when we think about this and we think about, man, the distress was so great, it's amazing that, that Jesus went and he knew that the crucifixion was before him. We see the Passion movie and we, we see all of those things. Like, listen, that's nothing new to men at this point in human history. They had seen multiple crucifixions. He was walking and enduring pain that many other humans walked and endured before him. So what is it with Jesus that he starts sweating drops of blood, that he is so tormented and in agony and fearful and distressed knowing what lies before him? And he said in the previous verse, this cup, God, let this cup pass. And the cup, if you read your Bible at all, is echoes in the Old Testament, Revelation, New Testament, the wrath of God towards sin. It's what the cup is. And it's almost like the father says to his son, you have to drink the cup. You have to absorb it in full. You have to endure all of it. The anger towards sin from a holy, righteous God, the hatred towards sin from an infinite, perfected God tells his son who's sitting in the garden, I know what's before you, and the one thing that Jesus goes, man, it's almost like Jesus says, hey, man, I'll go through the crucifixion, but this cup, let's let the cup pass. Like I, like, I know the crucifixion is huge and great and unbelievably weighty, but man, I'll even get through that if we can let the cup of your wrath pass me. And this is what grew him in agony. And this is why Jesus says, I see the cup, Father, the cup of the sins of human history. Is there any way can go through the pain of death on a cross but not take that? And it's almost like you hear the Father say, Son, you know if you do not drink from that cup, there will be no salvation for anyone. It's profound. And here's what's even more nuts. You go to Hebrews 12, where it says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Enduring literally meaning every part and facet of the cross. For the joy set before him. Part of the joy set before him was purchasing for the Father sons and daughters. Here's what's nuts. Jesus actually, there was joy in enduring and absorbing the wrath of God, the fury of God towards sin because he knew it would end in purchasing you and me as sons and daughters. That that gave Jesus joy to endure the cross? 
That what was before him, that he knew it would glorify his father, that that, that is absolutely mind-boggling to me. So we must understand that Jesus died the death that you and I deserve. And the word the Bible uses is that word propitiation. What propitiation just simply means is that God's wrath is absolutely upon us. Jesus steps in our place, takes the cup from our hand that we have to hold, that we will drink if we do not trust in his personal work on the cross, and he drinks it in full for us. And he absorbs that, and he suffers and bleeds and dies so that we might live in love and joy. Therefore, by propitiating, removing, appeasing, diverting the wrath of God that was due you and me. Here's why I say this. I say this because I love you. And I say this because there's a big movement out there that totally disagrees with this and does not want to talk about this and diverts this and ignores this and betrays this. And hear me, brother or sister or friend, you cannot understand the love of God if you do not understand the wrath of God. You can't. You cannot be showered with his mercy and grace if you do not understand the cup that you are supposed to drink. And yet Jesus says in the garden as he in agony and joy for you and for me says, okay, Father, I'll drink it. I'll take it. I'll endure it, I'll appease it. Mind-altering love displayed towards sinners who belittle his name. And this is what Jesus is doing. Romans 3 will say, he shed his blood. Part of that was the propitiation. Hebrews 2 will say, he was our high priest who made a propitiation for our sin. 1 John 2 and 1 John 4, you can read it throughout the Bible that this is absolutely part of the gospel and a necessary aspect of the gospel news. And just as Jesus prays for his disciples right here, wake up, pray that you may not enter temptation, we ought to pray that God would awaken us to this reality. Like the prideful heart says, there's no wrath over me, I'm really God, no God would judge me for my sin. The humble heart says, I realize I'm not gonna stand before a mirror and judge myself. I realize I'm going to stand before God and be judged by him. And you see this awesome display of humility and pride, and the Bible will say that the gospel is something that hardens a heart and also melts the ice. So our prayer is that as you hear the good news of the saving work of Jesus, week in and week out, as we gather, it would melt your heart and not harden your heart. That it would cultivate a humility in you as you see the work of Jesus and see his massive, mind-bending love that you would believe in this. Many of us in our hearts, and it's pride, want to ignore this, avoid this, suppress this. We're gonna be tempted to believe that we will stand at some point and be judged upon other things. And the only thing that can stand for you is Jesus. All of us are gonna need a champion. The only champion that will allow you to survive under this right, just payment is Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb we learned last week who shed his perfect, unblemished blood for the sins of the world, who John the Baptist announced in Luke 3, which is now culminating now. That he would take away the sins of the world and he would do it through all of this. So I just have a question for you as we close. Where is pride blinding you from the truth of your own heart? There's lots of areas this could be. Maybe for some of you, it's what are you chasing the illusion of glory in? Is it your work? Is it through hobbies? Is it through entertainment? Is it through relationships? Is it through the bottle? Is it through sex? What is it? What's the illusion of glory you're chasing when the meekness of Jesus is being laid before you saying, this is the only deliverance out of that prison? Um, Some of you in your pride, do you really understand the God of the Bible accurately? Like, is, is that how you understand? Do you understand that, that wrath was due you? Do you understand that he actually takes that for you? Do you understand in, in what's called penal substitution, he actually died your debt in your place for your sin, that that is necessary? Do you get that you can't earn any righteousness, that you attending here and showing up and singing songs and even sitting under the word cannot merit to you any grace, cannot merit to you any forgiveness, that solely Jesus Christ alone, faith in him alone is what will do that for you? 
That's good news. That's good news that we don't gather as a people that get to just be nicer because we hear about Jesus, that we get to be made new. Let's ask him for help as we consider these things. Father, right now I wanna just pray over the hearers in this room, myself included. Oh, Father, that we would listen and heed to your beautiful scripture. God, I even pray right now that you might make some who are dead in their sin alive to Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you might awaken us to the seriousness of our sin, that the fury of God, the wrath of God was, was due to be poured out upon it. That's how serious and weighty it is. Yet, God, the massive love of your son, that he would step in and drink the cup for us, that with the joy set before him, him purchasing for us sons and daughters of the kingdom, that that might give him a glad heart to do that. Father, would you work in this moment? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate what you need to illuminate right now? Would you bring to the surface what you need to bring to the surface right now? Would you allow there to be confession right now? Glad confession to you as to ways that pride has blinded our hearts where we think we deserve more than what we are getting and yet what we truly deserved you took in full in the humility of your son. Father, we thank you that you say the truth is what will set us free. Oh, Father, would you help us to believe the truth this morning? And may it set us free. Free from our enslavement to sin and lesser things. Freedom from the idols that we worship. Freedom from the pride that plagues our hearts. That you came to kill on the cross of your son. God, might we see as we sing and as we observe the Lord's Supper the great humility of Jesus, the example set before us that is our answer and our refuge and our remedy. Be praised in Jesus' name, amen.